There was no big bang. You hear that a lot about coming out, uh, you know, something's going to happen out of the labs at MIT or the labs at Exxon. Some guy in a white coat runs out Eureka, you know, sell all the oil. We got it. That's not reality. Reality is, is that incremental improvements happening in manufacturing facilities, happening in, in the field, happening with, you know, technologies being placed together. That's where you get a lot of your, your improvements on your uh, pricing or your economics and your performance that the market's demanding. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome to the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis. Episode 62 of the program happening right now, and we're very excited about the guests that we have on today. Mr. John Berger, CEO and founder of Sonova Energy, Texas boy made good in the renewable industry, and what a story he has from the Texas oil fields all the way to the New York Stock Exchange and taking his company public. What a great interview, not only about his origins, building Sonova, but what exactly he has planned for the future as he he takes Sonova Energy, he and his team, through the energy transition and what it means for powering residential homes, not just now, but well into the future. This is a wonderful conversation. But before we get into all that, let's take you through a few things. First, let's sit down with our CEO and founder, Mr. Mike Niemer, telling you about what it is we do here at eRenewable. Hi, Mike Niemer, co-founder and CEO of eRenewable. Today, I'd like to tell you about our suite of services. We can help you with your PPAs and BPPAs, renewable natural gas, responsibly sourced gas, lighting and HVAC efficiencies, and we can assist you in planning for your ESG needs. If we could be of any assistance, don't hesitate to call us at 1-866-ERENEW1 or email me at mike at erenew.net. Enjoy the show. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Mike Niemer. You can always check out more about the company over at erenew.net, and you can follow us on LinkedIn and connect with us on Twitter at erenew2020. That's at erenew2020. All right, another part of the show that we like to welcome in every other week, our exclusive partnership with the folks over at NEMA, the North American Energy Markets Association, and the NEMA News Minute. Here is the executive director of NEMA, Mr. Steve Shepard, with this week's NEMA News Minute. Steve? Hi, Fred. This is Steve Shepard, Executive Director of the North American Energy Markets Association. Thanks again for the opportunity to provide another NAMAN update for the Green Insiders listeners. After a brief summer hiatus, NAMA is pleased to resume our virtual presentation series, beginning with the great speakers and panels which would have been presented at the fall conference. First up is the new normal for winter and what to expect by Chris Hyde, meteorologist and weather desk sales director for Maxar. The energy industry, despite its best efforts, is susceptible to the wrath of nature, whether hurricanes, wildfires, scorching temperatures, or deep freezes. Be prepared. Find out what weather lies ahead this winter. That presentation is on Wednesday, September 22nd at 3 p.m. ET via Zoom. Following that, we have a special series of three interrelated panel discussions, which will take a deep dive into the challenges and opportunities presented by the explosive growth and the energy-related needs of data centers and electric vehicles. The first panel, featuring representatives from data centers and EVs, will be on October 13th. The second panel on grid infrastructure challenges, featuring representatives from MISO, PGM, and SPP, will be on October 27th. 
and the third panel featuring NEMA members who are delivering solutions now will be on November 10th. Look for additional information on NEMA's website, NEMA.com, and in future NEMA news minutes. Since NEMA also takes seriously its mission of hosting networking and relationship-building events, which is proving challenging in a pandemic, we are attempting small regional receptions for NEMA members only. Information is available on NEMA's website. Finally, we are pleased to announce the following companies have joined NEMA as market members. Key Capture Energy, based in Albany, New York, is a developer and operator of energy storage solutions with a growing portfolio of projects in New York, Texas, and across the U.S. Access North America Management Partners, based in Pittsburgh, is an independent investment and asset management firm focused on the renewable energy sector. The Williams Companies, based in Tulsa, is widely known for handling 30% of the natural gas in the U.S., Williams recently completed the acquisition of former NEMA member Sequent Energy. And lastly, our newest member, Mercuria Energy America, based in Greenwich, Connecticut, is one of the largest integrated energy and commodities trading companies in the world. The contact information for these new members can be found on NEMA's website. That's it for now. We look forward to giving another update soon. Thanks, Fred. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Steve Shepard. And, of course, all of that is available on their website as well over at NEMA.com. That's NEMA.com. All right, let's get right down to it. The moment we've all been waiting for, the conversation with Mr. John Berger, CEO and founder of Sonova, talking again about his entrepreneurial roots, kind of what Sonova's role is in improving the energy transition, as well as kind of their role in the energy infrastructure not to mention, we'll get into a little bit about what they plan to do moving forward with not just the becoming the go-to for all things residential solar, but residential power as well, plus what it means for EV charging and their plans for that. It is a fascinating interview with one of the premier minds in all things renewable energy. Here is Mr. John Berger, CEO and founder of Sonova Energy. Where did that entrepreneurial spirit start and what kind of got you going when it came to SunCap or Standard Renewable? I would say that, you know, my dad was an entrepreneur. He was in the construction business, engineering services. And, you know, so certainly I got both the, the good and, and the bad side of that growing up as, as an entrepreneur's son. I got to work a lot. I got to do things that uh, go in the uh, field and, and run and, and manage guys that were literally two or three X my age. And so that was really helpful of building uh, the skill sets and, and uh, really you know, being okay with being on your own, you know, candidly. The the downside of that is the downside of being an entrepreneur is, you know, I remember growing up constantly worried about money. You know, that that's another part of entrepreneurship is, is you know, maybe a false, and I, and I indeed, I think it many times it is, particularly these days, is that you have a job, you think that money's always going to come through and there's always going to be there. And speaking of Enron, you know, there was an ending there that uh, a lot of people thought that that was going to be the case and it ended up not being true. Um, but you, you at least have that illusion, you, that feeling. But as an entrepreneur, you don't have that illusion. You know what money's in and what isn't. You know what payroll you got to make and other expenses that you need to have money for. And that's a very harsh reality for that, that frankly, the vast, vast majority of the population simply can't stomach. And so I think, I think growing up in that environment was very, very helpful. It, it molded me. Uh, to to want to be an entrepreneur, and then I married an entrepreneur's daughter, and and that was that was key and helpful. And I always, um, you know, give advice. I, I can't tell you how many entrepreneurs that I've met where their spouse was not supportive, and that basically that ended the entrepreneurship. So your wife knew in a, I mean, obviously in a different way 
what you needed. I mean, we all love support and what have you, but she also knew and just an integral part as far as what made you tick from a professional standpoint that maybe, like you said, maybe most folks when they meet their, their significant other, maybe don't look at that right away. I, I think that's fair. I think it's fair. Yeah, very fair. And, and having that understanding is key uh, because, um, you know, it, 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 it doesn't, it doesn't happen very often. Um, it can get very tiring to be married to an, an entrepreneur. So let me ask you this then, how many, uh, you know, how many ideas have you bounced off her that she's liked? And uh, let, me, let me ask you this, what was the conversation like when it came time to start Sonova? Yeah. So I, I had coming out of Harvard business school, I said, this is what I'm going to go do. And, and ultimately, you know, that was a venture cap firm. Uh, and then, and then ultimately ended up being standard renewable and that was, I just remember said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to go do this. You know, had to make a bunch of other leaps. Like she, you know, no longer worked when we had our first child, we had four, four children. Uh, so there's a bunch of leaps of faith and, and so forth. But I said, Hey, this is what I'm going to do. So it's more on the supportive side of things. And then from you know, coming out of that experience, it was like, you, you want to go get a job? Uh, and I was like, no, I want to do the Suncap deal. And, you know, that uh, ultimately worked out as well, selling that firm, you know, to, to a big power company. And then from there, I think she knew better. There was like, it wasn't going to go back and, and get another job. It was like, that was successful. So let's go start Sonova and make a go of that. So I think, and I think at a certain point in time, frankly, as an entrepreneur, you become unemployable and coming out of business school, there's a lot of uh, name oil and gas firms around town where, and this happened to me coming out of AM too, where the hiring manager said, we'll give you a job, but don't take it. You, you won't like it here. You'll, you're an entrepreneur. You won't last a few months. It's too bureaucratic. And it's the way that a big company is, but uh, this is not for you, but I'll give you a job if you want it. Um, so that, that's, that's also been something that's been uh, you know, an interesting data point along the way. So knowing that about yourself and having folks kind of point that out to you along the way, what was it? You, you decided to start SunCap. Just real quick, just kind of walk us through a little bit the SunCap and the standard leading to Sonova and just kind of, you know, what that process taught you and maybe the biggest takeaway from that and that kind of helped set the stage for Sonova. Well, I would say that, you know, standard was a contractor, uh, which was essentially be a dealer for us today. And, and so that was really helpful putting all that together and trying to scale up a contractor uh, frankly, you realized you couldn't you couldn't do it. Uh, so I think it, it really gets into spending a lot of time on the details of you know the business model and what you're going about doing it. Really understanding it looks great on a piece of paper in a boardroom in front of an investor, but how does it really work with people? Because people don't do things that you would see as logical on a spreadsheet, you know, for the most part. So uh, I think that was a, a very very much a learning experience uh, for me. It, it obviously ended successfully, but I looked back at, at that and said, hmm, we've got to have a business model change where we harness the power of the other entrepreneurs and, and realize that labor is not scalable. And how are we going to you know, learn from other industries, cellular, telephony, satellite cable, television, home security, instead of trying to fight and do what everybody else is telling you to do and, and fight that and say, no, no, it's different this time, which, by the way, Two sayings in the boardroom, you always know you're going to lose a lot of money when the first one is, it's different this time. The second one is, how hard could this be? You know, I've, I've seen that time and time again, and, and that does get into the next one, which is, you know, it's a lot harder and be humble than you think it is. And what that would lead to is maintaining focus. And I see that time and time again, including right now, 
where there's a lot of CEOs, particularly when they get a lot of money, either from venture investors or just in general, they've had success as a, as a big you know, publicly traded firm. And they start putting money into all sorts of different things because they feel like the success that they've had, the money that they had is giving them a, a right to go out and do a bunch of different things. And that's where, that's where you can get in trouble um, as well. And I've seen that time and time again, I've learned that stay, stay focused. Yeah, you know, I know you're given a couple phrases that always tend to lose money. There's a third one in there, build it and they will come. In today's world, that doesn't necessarily uh, pay off from time to time. Build it and they, comes, they will come is not a phrase that you want to hear in a boardroom either because you're putting good money after bad usually. Yeah, that's right. And I think trying things aggressively, but then shutting them down when you realize that they don't work is another, that's hard. It's, it's easy hard, to say yeah. it. It's really hard to do it. And that goes with hiring, you know, as well as it's really difficult when somebody's really bad, they show up drunk on the, on the job side or, you know, that's easy. Right. Um, but when they middling and do it, you know, a reasonably okay job, but they're not the best that that's, that's when it's really difficult. And the same is true in putting a, you know, making other business decisions, if it's okay, but it's not great you know, when do you call the, the patient, so to speak, and go put those resources someplace else? Um, the other mistake is that you think you have resources and it goes back to what I was saying, to do everything, and, and you don't. So how does a kid from Texas, goes to Texas A&M, starts at Enron, I mean, you are in the heart of the oil and gas country. Where did your love affair with renewables start? It started when you know, I was sitting on the power trading desk at Enron and realized the internet was coming of age. It was an internet boom. It was a mania. If you build it, they will come was definitely the mantra there, right, Mike? Uh, but uh, you had this idea that technology in the, in the world, therefore, was going to really fundamentally change. And it did. It did. In some cases, it wasn't the companies that you thought were going to do it in the 90s. And I'm always reminding folks of that. Amazon was thought to be just a bookseller and with a website, like everybody can do that, right? Turns out that was a lot more there. Uh, and then you got somebody like Yahoo who's going to you know, dominate the earth, right? Turns out not so much, right? So you've got a lot of learnings there. And what I would say that was clear to me is, is that what we were trying to do and change the energy business, specifically power, was, was something that we were trying to take an industrial age system that was built for the industrial age and never not changed very much, if, if really not at all and cram it into this new environment that, you know, uh, that we were building with the internet and then other technologies, smartphones came later and so forth, right? That, that didn't fit. And indeed, physical flows of power are a lot more like water and they're very, very much um, you know, limited in nature uh, than a lot of people think and understand. So it's a very complex system too. And if you look at uh, digital, there's two things you need. You need connectivity, uh, which everybody's mostly focused on. So what's your cell signal and so forth. The other thing you need is power. And what I recognized there was, okay, we've got this industrial age system, extremely complex, frankly is breaking and the, uh, and the reliability demands of being on uh, the internet. And now of course on video calls, which greatly accelerated all this, it, the, the demands for consumers in terms of a better service are escalating rapidly. In a, in a system that's not capable, physically, no way ever capable of delivering that kind of level of reliability. So when you look at all of this, you say, something's got to change here. But you didn't know the technologies. I had no idea. I had suspicion about solar. I had a suspicion about fuel cells that was more involved, batteries. 
which I wasn't as much of a fan with, uh, of back then. And then you've got other technologies out there, wind, et cetera, and so forth. So when, when you look at the transformation that I thought was coming, including transportation, and that we were well overdue for a change, if you go back and look at the last uh, 500 years of human history, it told me that uh, there was going to be a change, figure out the technologies that were going to change it, and then figure out a business you know, a model that would work, and then figure out where in the value chain of this new industry that you wanted to sit because you felt like the value would bucket there you know, the most. And so that's what the, the thought process started. And, and then uh, through a lot of different uh, inputs and in, in three startups uh, later, it, you know, as we move forward, you know, I was able to make more and more of a, a decision and views about what was going to happen in all those and try to hopefully pivot you know, to create Sonova into a place that was uh, optimal, if you will. Speaking of Sonova, are you guys more focused on the residential side or the commercial industrial side or the municipality side, the larger project? We're all resi. At this point, you're all resi. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it doesn't mean we won't, you know, in the long term plan, we have commercial there, we have multifamily, uh, sometimes call it community solar. W- the reason why we're in resi is regardless of regulatory structure, the residential customer pays more per kilowatt hour than anybody else. Period. Full stop. Mm-hmm. The other thing about it is when you realize that the technologies that are going to be most disruptive were solar and batteries and some software then you would look at that and say they're inherently distributed technologies. Uh, the other thing that told me that the industry was gonna, and, and I think that we're, gonna, we're under, still greatly underestimating the pace of change, both in the transportation side and the stationary side, is that for the first time uh, since Edison, we've had a distributed fuel sunlight and we have distributed conversion technology where the optimal place has been for the fuel and the conversion technology uh, typically, it's it's better to be uh, in terms of optimization to have it centralized. So the first big power plant, the Niagara Falls, right? That is obviously a centralized fuel source, and then you're distributing it out you know, from there. The turbine technology and the you know the obviously the steam engine first uh, that was you know better made efficient by scaling it up in really large uh, large amounts. But here you have a distributed technology exactly like. Uh, you know, an iPad, a personal computer, a laptop, and so forth. I mean, a lot of the technology is, you know, the exact same. And so when you look at that, you'd say, hmm, where does that fit better? Well, it doesn't fit on a large industry, industrial, like I'm sitting in an office tower. Doesn't, that doesn't work very well. But it does do very, very well uh, with a small footprint, like a single family home. And so matching those two up, highest uh, willingness to pay with where the technology fits the best to address the need, that's a nice fit. And, and I felt like it would be the most profitable area of, of the industry. Turns out that was right. So how many states have you all uh, put solar panels in? I don't know offhand about how many. I know we're in roughly north of 30 states and territories at this point in time. Um, some are bigger than others. You know, our top three sure. states, California, although we have less than half the, the, the footprint that our competitors have there, they're California-based firms. We have big uh, next presences, uh, uh, Puerto Rico, which we we opened that market and uh, way back when, and then New Jersey. 
What is Sonova doing is, or what have you guys and your team found as far as trying to penetrate markets to let folks know about the importance of solar and what it means to them and, and why it's a good deal to get on? And two, um, you know, what is Sonova's role or what are you guys finding as far as, you know, with infrastructure and what have you, how Sonova can make a difference in so that, you know what, when power does go off, if I've got solar panels, if I've got battery storage, guess what? It doesn't mean I'm waiting for Centerpoint for the next, you know, day to however long. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. It obviously has driven a lot of business for us this year, you know, starting with the winter storm, you know, Yuri, right back in February. I have a child sitting at home right now and not be able to go to school because school doesn't have power. It's in the heart of at the heart of Houston, right? It's not in the outskirts, right? And let's just say the school has some money too, right? So when you look at this, you'd say, why? Why are we doing this? And individuals are, are around town increasingly like, uh, well, why are you sitting without power when candidly your disposable income is really you know, nice? Uh, and the answer is, is that there is no good answer anymore about it. You shouldn't have to deal with this. You're, you're sitting there depending upon a monopoly that has zero competition that kind of just basically gets to it when it gets to it. I mean, man, there's some ep- efforts there and so forth. But at the end of the day, what do you I mean? You're depending on a single wire on something that was created at the turn of this, not the last century, but the century before that. I mean, it's crazy. That's crazy. They couldn't do virtual school yesterday because there's too many kids that didn't have power in their own homes. So we see a lot of, I I would say that, especially in Houston has been afflicted with, oh, that's unprecedented. That's never gonna happen again. You know, tax day flood. Then it was, what what was the 4th of July flood? I mean, we had a flood, we've had a flood on every holiday except Christmas, right? Um, and then we've all been 500 year floods. Yeah, 500 year, 2000 year floods. Somebody obviously busted the math um, on, on the probability analysis, right? But when you when you look at all this, and including this week, uh, you, you'd say, you know, look, there's a clear trend here measured in years, measured in multiple da- data points here. What about this makes you think that things are going to get better? Have you seen any movement at the federal, state, or local level? that really would transform the region's infrastructure and deal with the kind of issues that we have. Have you acknowledged that there is a problem called climate change? It is real. It is not a democratic conspiracy or whatever else that's that's been talked about. It is science, it is happening. We can all debate about how much of this is imposed and created by man uh, and the burning of fossil fuels. But at the end of the day, the risks associated with this, and I think this is the right way to think about it is, are so huge that why don't we spend some money and investment, especially when it can create a lot of jobs and wealth and, and, and uh, other community benefits to mitigate that risk, if not eliminate that risk. And I think that's where more and more people are clearly coming out. Um, even in, in Houston is saying like, look, we, we don't, we, this is like sitting there and just insisting that you're gonna watch a black and white rabbit ear TV and, and forget about the, you know, the streaming and flat panel you know, TVs that everybody else has. Why do that? Why are you sitting there uh, and enforcing that upon yourself when there's clearly better solutions and the technology keeps getting better and better um, out there? So we're seeing a lot of demand for that. We're, we're obviously out there trying to you know, make sure that people know that we're out there and there's other solutions out there. Um, and increasingly people are, you know, they want the ability for at least a few hours and days to operate completely off grid and operate their life just as the, that they always do. And increasingly, the technology with solar and storage and service from us is enabling that to, to, to happen. 
So I think that it's a clear trend and, and we get reminded of it, you know, too often here. And, and I think the trend is progressing in terms of more events that unfortunately it's going to happen. And uh, we're seeing more and more people em embrace, uh, you know what, you know, maybe solar is, is, is a good deal after all. Uh, and, and I'd like to see, this gets a little, you know, away from answering your question, but I, I think it's very, very unfortunate. It is unfortunate that the energy business has been so politicized over the last years. We don't get a true view of technology, what it's happening, being open-minded to it and saying, we can make money with solar. We can make money with oil. Why do we sit there and have somebody insist on being on one camp or the other? Because there's no way we can put solar panels in everybody's home, you know, by the end of the year, you know, in Houston, Texas or anywhere else, right? We are going to have to have a transition here. Now that transition is probably going to be shorter than people think uh, in some of the conventional energy business, centralized power, oil and gas and so forth. But there is a transition. So we need to work together to figure out how do we, for instance, like the Houston, greater Houston area economy, how do we make sure we don't get left behind? We want to make sure we, we consolidate, we keep all those oil and gas jobs here. We want to do that. We don't want to get rid of that. Why would we want to do that? But what we want to do is make sure that we're also setting ourselves up for, it's not the future, it's the present. And it's getting more and more of a presently as a, as a larger part of the industry. So let's, let's count them both and put them both in here. And I think you're seeing more and more of that open mind. I know you are more, more of that open-mindedness and saying, yeah, let's, let's embrace it all in energy and have you know, Houston be a leader in that. You know, here we are six, seven months removed. And oh, by the way, the governor comes out and says, well, renewables were the reasons why we, you know, part of the problem with the freeze. And we all know less than, you know, 12 hours later, of course, that wasn't the case. How have you been able to combat that or at least try to, uh, you know, help refresh people's perspectives of, hey, listen, there's more to renewables than just, you know, wind and solar and the fact that, you know what, there was more than this, just that that caused ERCOT. I would say that one is what you try to do is you try to be more even killed. I think trying to be blasting out people uh, from one side or the other is is not is not productive. Um, I know it's our political climate, and uh, I also think that's highly unproductive, and and really demonstrates I think on both sides of the aisle lack of leadership and truly being a good citizen of the country, let alone a leader. And so I think that's most unfortunate. And so what you do is you you calm that stuff down. I mean, I, I have a number of friends that and guys uh, that I love that are in the oil and gas business. Uh, and uh, you can be friends and you can also sit there and say, look, you know, things are changing. And that message is getting easier and easier because it's becoming, frankly, more apparent that things are have changed. But I think it's more about tone at the end of the day. It's more about tone and getting the messaging out that this is okay. And, and for instance, I've, I've spoken to a lot of bankers over the years and lawyers and other service industries. And I said, you know, you know what uh, part of the energy business uh, you're in? And they're like, I don't know. It says, you're in the energy business when you ask a guy like me or a gal like me, do you have money for my fees? And if I say yes, you're in that part of the energy business. You said earlier when, when you first started out as far as, you know, you were big on solar, but batteries not so much. And, and I'm guessing that had a lot to do with the fact that the technology was, was in, a, in a very different place than it is right now. Obviously, you guys have, have adopted battery storage in a big way. Where are we at right now with battery storage and what are you most encouraged by as far as just the advancement of it? And where is it heading right now? What do you see as kind of the next big part of the battery storage uh, formula, if you will? Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that I got wrong early, but picked it up and learned my lesson and, and really was one of the, you know, a couple of things I think in my personal opinion that, that made Elon Musk successful with Tesla was 
that was more of a system approach. And I see that mistake being made um, often with folks. Uh, for instance, they think, oh, it's just about the solar panel and they don't put the battery, they don't put the software to manage the load and a bunch of other things, even a generator together. They don't think about it as a system. And, and uh, you know, that's where, when you look at the batteries and, and how the configuration was changed with, with what Elon did on the Tesla, for instance, and, and made it a, a different package, if you will, that made the battery more capable of, of doing uh, the, the job than it was previously. And I think the second one that, that he did, you know, very well was he started at a high end uh, versus trying to make something that could directly competed with oil on an economic basis. And so the cars were small, boxy, didn't look good. Nobody really, nobody wanted them. And here is, you know, what we've seen on the battery side of things is, you know, a lot very similar. One, it's a system approach. And so without solar, the batteries are less attractive materially. But on the other side of that, solar is less attractive without the battery. The other thing about it is there's some markets like Hawaii, Puerto Rico, uh, places in California and the Northeast, et cetera, that pay a lot of money for their power. And so they have a higher willingness to pay and they have issues with the reliability. Um, California's wildfires that, that now unfortunately have become you know, literally seasonal. And we've got a lot of hurricanes clearly here in Texas, Florida, Puerto Rico, Hawaii. And so there's a lot of reliability concerns. And so we have a higher willingness to pay versus somebody in Kansas, for instance. So when you look at, at this, we've, we've been able to uh, direct the technologies and modify them in just enough with system approaches that we have been put into markets that make sense economically. And then as the whole thing happens about you know, putting money in to the, to the market, and that money gets fed back into companies that are, you know, innovating and incremental improvements. Like, for instance, one thing that everybody gets wrong a lot is they assume that the same amount of lithium or cobalt or whatever the mineral is, is going to be needed to produce the same amount of kilowatt hour storage that it does today, that it will tomorrow, that it will five years from now. And that's simply just not been true. And so you're stretching those materials through incremental innovation. And I think that's the really big uh, other lesson here is, is that when you look at, again, using the example of, of Tesla, there's been incremental innovations over the way that's really added up. Solar panels, incremental innovation measured over uh, nine to 12 years, depending on when you want to do the cut, that took the pricing down over 90% during that period of time. There was no big bang. You hear that a lot about coming out, uh, you know, something's going to happen out of the labs at MIT or the labs at Exxon. Some guy in a white coat runs out Eureka, you know, sell all the oil. We got it. That's not reality. Reality is, is that incremental improvements happening in manufacturing facilities, happening in, in the field, happening with, you know, technologies being placed together. That's where you get a lot of your, your improvements on your uh, pricing or your economics and your performance that the market's demanding. You talked about early on companies that when they get that funding, maybe they start branching other things. You guys, like you said, you've been very adamant about, you know, home solar, going into battery storage. And so obviously those are the main two tenants. What do you hope to accomplish for the next kind of the next phase of Sonova as we start to, you know, as we're now in the throes of the energy transition? What we've seen is we laid out a vision early on. Our business model, our focus, our strategy has not changed since I founded the firm. And what most, if not everybody would tell you, that is unique in, in our industry. I take a lot of pride in that. And we've had a thoughtful plan and we're executing on it. And we continue to this day to do that. So when I look ahead, 
we're going to add EV charging. We're going to add generators. We're going to add load management. We're going to stay focused on the power side of the home. Yeah, we've got some roofing capabilities that we'll throw, you know, we'll finance a roof for you as we're, as we're doing the solar service agreement and so forth. But that's, I think that just makes sense is, is that having a nice roof and a stable roof and a good roof is a great idea when you're putting solar on it. It's going to last for, you know, 25 plus years. So Outside that, we've been maintaining a lot of, uh, very much focus there, and we're going to continue to do that. So it's all about whatever is needed to power that home. And more and more, increasingly, we're looking at it and to do that without the grid. Doesn't mean we're going to cut the cord, but it means that we have to have the ability to cut the cord for what the way we look at it for really weeks on end, because that's what consumers want. They want to have, they want to live life uninterrupted. That is a, a slogan for us. You have the power to live life uninterrupted, and that's our focus. So where does that take us? I, I think it takes us uh, potentially down to other places that are similar in the marketplace, like commercial, small commercial, maybe uh, some of the uh, you know, apartments, things like that. that. That could definitely be something that we've got on the roadmap. Uh, we're going to be a big part of the transformation of the transportation business, the EV charging, uh, because 80 plus percent of the charging is done at the house. You know, but why why stop there? Could you come up with a service that along with your power service for your home that would be uh, energy service for your cars, whether you're at home or away? We think the answer there is yes. So it's really more focused around the co- uh, the consumer uh, and and what we can give him or her uh, to power their lives individually. That's really where we're focused on. And we're going to continue to have that focus as we move forward. So we're not changing our business model or anything of that nature. And we certainly believe that the model that we've created here in the United States is something that is timely for international expansion as well. So we're looking increasingly at the international marketplace. The battery was a catalyst. There's also some regulatory changes and so forth that are going on in some countries. But you know there is a lot of opportunity across the globe, not just in the U.S., for exactly what we do. When Sonova went public two years ago, and of all the companies you founded, and like I said, you, you know, having four kids and what have you, I mean, we've all, you know, see, had, had those moments. What did that mean, though? I mean, starting, I mean, being at the New York Stock Exchange, I mean, for somebody who's been to business school, I mean, that, it's watching your dad toil for, you know, years. What did that mean for you? That's a great question because I also spent when my time at A&M in between the years there, one year I spent uh, being a page on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Um, so uh, they called me tax. They assumed I had a truck and a horse. I had the truck, but I didn't have the horse. My dad had one oil well and some piece of land he bought out of town. So they thought I was, in, you know, of course, he was in the oil business. You know, so kind of the J.R. Ewing type thing, which we all know reality is quite a bit different, especially with me. So that was interesting. And, oh, and by the way, my, my top job was to go get pizza for everybody. And that's what I did every Friday. And then I, I kept the, uh, the, the spent pizza so that I could have, you know, not have to buy dinner so I could afford to go out and buy beer for $10 a, a pitcher or whatever, which was really expensive. Yeah. So going back on the floor, gosh, 30 years later, you know, almost, almost to that point anyways, and, and for the first time since that time and, and taking company public, was a special experience. And, and obviously the floor of the New York Stock Exchange had changed tremendously with the technology changes. And you know, it was definitely a smaller uh, uh, space, um, but I uh, just so happened to have worked on one of the posts that was left in the main room 
uh, that was now New York Stock Exchange. So that was a that was a moment I'll never forget. It was a, a good story, if you will, from you know rising from nothing to doing you know to taking a company public. A lot of hard work, a lot of people that supported uh, me along the way. It was a it was very much a a, a great feeling, and it was great to, to have my wife and kids there on the podium, uh, management team, investors, the support board members. Um, it was. It was probably, it's always special, but again, having spent time on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, always looking up that podium and saying, I want to be there someday. And then to actually achieve it, I think is, uh, is even more, you know, more special. That is definitely something you should be proud of and congratulations. Not everybody gets to live their dream like that. And, and that's a great story. Get you out of here with this. How important is your role as the CEO and founder of Sonova, being in Houston, Texas, being a Texas guy, having those unique ex experiences of both sides of the aisle? How important is your mission and Sonova's mission over these next couple of years leading this energy transition charge from a balanced point of view? From the Houston perspective. Is that what you're asking, Fred? Um, I'd say from the Houston perspective, but more importantly, just like I said, but being if you could, because again, if you can get people's minds across this stuff in Houston, I got to believe that you can pretty much do it anywhere if you can do it here at home. Yes, I, I have said in the in the past that you could not take yourself too seriously by starting a solar company in Houston, Texas. Uh, yeah, you, you have to tolerate a lot of ribbing, and and some of it was um, uh, was was joking, and some of it uh, sometimes was not right, but. Uh, you know, I, I would say that uh, I think our role in this is to be a part of the leadership to, of, you know, what we're talking about here is not just decarbonization. It's, it's decentralization. It's, it's, it's saying that the, that the power system in the United States is, and, and other countries is going to look more like the Internet, where we've got a combination of centralized resources that are fired maybe by gas, but, you know, solar, wind, et cetera, utility scale storage, storage even. And then you've got the decentralized, you know, the solar and, and uh, batteries and, and load manager and EV charging and generators and all that that we put maybe fuel cells on the home of each uh, customer out there. And, and those need to be brought together. And so that there's more of a transformation going on than, than most people think. Uh, there's a fundamental technological shift that's happening that's uh, really going to be transformative. And Getting that message out, I think, is is something that we bear a lot of responsibility to do. And, and so we spend a lot of time doing that, getting that messaging out. I think the other thing that we have a lot of responsibility to is, as I was mentioning uh, before, is, is tone and, and making sure that we have a even handed approach. I'm proud that when in somebody uh, across the aisle, so to speak, from oil and gas or centralized power wants to engage with somebody on our side, they do typically want to come over and talk to Sonova because they know they'll be treated fairly. They'll know have an, you know, an, an even mindedness, if you will, about what's happening uh, and be objective about it and call it call the truth what it is. You know, um, here we're doing well, here we're not doing well and so forth as far as technologies, where we are, where we're not and how that fits into the transition. So I think we have a very critical role on being a truth sayer and being uh, somebody as a company that can come in and say, you know, we can bridge the divide, so to speak. So I think it's another you know critical role. The other thing is, and lastly, is that we have a responsibility, particularly to our home region of, of Houston, uh, to say, look, you know, this is happening. It's okay. Trend change always happens. Change is a part of life. If we're not changing, we're regressing. And we need to, you know, nobody understands that more than you know, Texans and Houstonians out there. 
and, and encouraging people to say, I know change is scary. Uh, let's call it what it is. But change brings enormous amount of opportunity. So let's remember that just because your dad did something doesn't mean you have to do the same thing. And then oftentimes you look at it in life and you say, I hope I'm not doing the same thing as my dad, at least in, in, in or my mother or whatever the case may be. Uh, I'm, I hope that we're changing and moving forward in life. And I think that's really something else is giving that positive message that change is while scary, it's okay. And it's necessary. It's necessary to move forward um, as a society. So those are the three things that I think that we can do a, a great job with amongst many others being, you know, good uh, part of the community. You know, it's not lost on me that we have a responsibility to be responsible financially so that, you know, we can't predict the future. I can't tell you that we're not going to make mistakes. We are uh, over time. We certainly have. I've certainly had in the past. But I do think we have a responsibility to make sure that we don't see um, a kind of a financial collapses that have been part of our industry, that have been part of we talked about earlier um, in the Houston area, that we can move forward and be a good example of proper uh, community stewardship and making sure that people can see change as positive and moving forward and continuing. Thank you so much for that, Mr. John Berger. Don't forget, you can catch all of the Green Insider episodes over at Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, eRenew.net, or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, a huge shout-out to Mike Niemer and the entire eRenewable and Green Insider team. This has been the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. We make going green easier. The world won't get no better. we got to change it now, just you and me.